Episode 46 of the Swamplix Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday, and I am once again joined over Skype by Peter Moran from the We Love to Watch Podcast. Hey, everyone. Peter is filling in as our co-host for December. This is going to be our last episode of the year. I promise it will be shorter than the last one. <laughs> and then <laughs> next episode, we're going to bring another mammoth to you when we do our like wrap-up of the best films of 2017, which will likely go on way longer than it needs to as well. I am I'm impressed by your ability to actually do one of these wrap-up things, because like, I, I tried to catch up on a bunch of my uh, the 2017 movies I missed, and it is uh, difficult. It's always kind of a lie. Like, I put out my best movies of 2016 list after, I don't know, very early in January uh, this year. And then about halfway into the month, 20th Century Women finally came down here and was easily better than my favorite movie of the year, which was The Neon Demon, and mm-hmm. just made my list completely invalid. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's why Aaron and I on the show, and we'll have a second one this year, because our, our podcast has been going for almost two years now, is we do a best of, we're doing our best of 2016 in January of 2018, because we give ourselves an entire year to play catch up. <laughs> <laughs> I totally respect that. And then I'm looking back at like what I had listed as like my best films of 2016, and I'm like, I don't think I would change anything else. Like I think I would just put 20th Century Women at the top. So it's like more like I'm bitter about... The idea of platform releases and how these films come out early December in like New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and then trickle down to places like New Orleans. <laughs> like, I get really angry about like, oh, I there's four movies I want to see in the theater right now that haven't reached New Orleans yet. And yet it feels so dead here because those are going to trickle out over the Oscar conversation. And I have to kind of wait for our turn to like join the conversation. It's pretty annoying. It could be embittering, I imagine, um, because... <laughs> you're like but like i do i would go see that movie i would i would pay the money i would go see that movie right now um and if i if you want to pay for it on amazon or whatever if that's an option you're gonna pay like 15 dollars it's like well i want to go see it in the theater if i'm gonna pay 15 dollars yeah or own a physical copy of it for that amount of money uh yeah oh you're recording in san diego right i am so we get we get uh, we don't have a as good of a selection as chicago for you know theaters for doing art movies and foreign movies but we do have a couple we have a couple theaters that i'm trying to warm myself up to the problem is in chicago we have the music box which i mentioned on the last episode uh music box is like my favorite theater in the world and not having something here that's at least like a corollary to me is uh, a little a little disheartening well i'm not gonna make you dive into your favorite movies in 2017 but i will ask you what movie did you see this year from a past year that you enjoyed? Like, what was your favorite discovery of 2017 that necessarily wasn't a new release? So I uh, I do Spooktober. I celebrate the holiday of Spooktober, which is I try and watch as many horror movies as I can during the month of October. 31 is the goal, but I have gone over 31 for five years now. And this year, one of the most notable ones ties into uh, our theme today really well. Uh, it's Night of the Demon. 
this is the original Jacques Tournier movie from 1957, and it didn't get the sort of release that a lot of these these classics, like Eyes Without a Face and Car- uh, Carnival Souls and such, uh, have gotten. I like couldn't find it for years, and this year I finally got to watch it, and it blew me away. I've never even heard of that one, honestly. Yeah, it's uh, Curse of the Demon or Night of the Demon. Uh, make sure you're watching the one from 57. There's also like a Bigfoot movie from 1980 that's unrelated. <laughs> really, really amazing. It's uh, about a, <laughs> essentially a uh, evil devil worshiper who casts curses on people. And uh, a uh, an American professor arrives in London, falls for a girl, and then those two sort of become the target of this evil devil worshiper uh, who puts the curse of the demon on them. And it's sort of a ring thing where like you have like some time to sort of sit and stew in the dread, which is one of the best horror tropes ever. Like he's not going to come for you tonight. He's going to come for you in seven days or whatever. <laughs> it's one of my, the best horror tropes because like it, it, it helps uh, bring on my favorite thing about horror, which isn't gore. It isn't necessarily super intense graphic violence. It's the sense of longing dread and this feeling that like something is coming for you and you don't know exactly what's going to happen, but you know you're not going to like it. Uh, and Jacques Tournier, uh, just like with Cat People, kind of shoots it like better than a lot of horror movies of the era. It's a it's a gorgeous movie. Yeah, there was a real sweet spot around that time where maybe even more so in the 30s and 40s where they were like trying to make horror like a respectable genre. And it worked for a while with those early like Karloff and Lugosi movies like uh, The Black Cat. And stuff like that, where it was like super classy for a minute before it sort of trailed off. And then you get the more jokey, like Abbott and Costello makes Frankenstein echoes of that past. But I really like that like classy sweet spot where big studios were like, oh, we can actually make this respectable for adult audiences before, you know, they started selling directly to children. Uh, I've never heard of Night of the Demon, but that sounds amazing. Yeah, you should check it out. I have no idea why Criterion hasn't done a release of it. It seems like something that, just like Carnival of Souls, would be something that people would be like, you got to see the Criterion version of. The regular DVD looks of it looks fine. There's like two different cuts of it, an American cut and the original cut. Obviously watch the original cut because it's longer. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really fantastic thing that taps into a lot of my interests which is like i love occult horror the idea of like these like evil demonic forces that are behind the scenes and if like you perform a certain type of like blood ceremony you can like evoke them and get them to do your really petty bullshit (laughs) and it's it's yeah it, it ties in really well with uh there's a lot of long dreadful sequences of of pursuit and um People having to outwit one another, which reminds me a lot of the third act of Cat People, which has one of my favorite classic horror pursuits ever. And it's gorgeous. Both of them are gorgeously filmed. And um, I do have to say, just sort of off the top, like, I do enjoy listening to your podcast year round. But my favorite time of the year for We Love to Watch is the October season, because you and Aaron take Spooktober so seriously to the point where you plan your list year-round. You always watch way more than you expect you're going to. And I know we kind of do this to you as well, but you make my watch list like explode around that time of the year. <laughs> where, like, you know, I, I'll have a few older movies, like I'll pick up from Shockwaves or something, where I was like, oh, I'll take a note. I'll, I'll probably watch that at some point. But every Spooktober, y'all just like 
completely explode my list of things to keep an eye on. It becomes like unwatchable. Just how many movies are still out there I haven't seen. It's uh, a dangerous habit that we have with one another because we just go nose to nose with each other. Like, well, like, yeah, but you should definitely check out these 40 movies. And then you watch all those 40 <laughs> movies and then you come up with another 40 that we have to watch. And then like, I have to report back what I thought of The Dentist. Or after your Brian, your Brian Yesna episode was particularly uh, the one that I was like in Screaming Mad George stuff in particular. I was like, oh, once I start watching these movies, I need to report back. Because <laughs> it's we're, we've, we were enablers of one another. We give each other bad habits. My favorite thing about Spooktober, without getting too, too into it, is that, yes, it is a chance to play catch up. It's a chance to knock out a lot of those hits that you've been meaning to get to. It also, the way it works is that it lets you appreciate movies that like might just be a three and a half out of five in you know the regular world you can like actually sit and like be really comparative with them of other movies and they they sort of can help abridge other movies and you sort of appreciate them and they they also help your number count (laughs) so uh spooktober is just generally a very beautiful thing to me that i never thought i would be able to watch that many movies in a month and then i just end up being able to because i go whole hog in yeah, I usually get like tired out by the end of Halloween uh, in a way that I envy your stamina. Like, <laughs> I, I guess I just I watch a lot of horror year round. So like, by the time we actually finish, you know, two or three Halloween episodes, where you know, for this show we watch more than one movie at a time. So like, if I watch like fifteen movies just for the podcast in that month, that's already like too much, you know? Yeah, I get worn down very easily in that season, but I I get re invigorated just hearing y'all excitedly talk about a bunch of different like genre film discoveries so that is one of my favorite times of year to listen we love to watch thank you well i mean part of the reason of podcasting in general and why we do these like movie the month and movie the minute recommendations is to like make yourself watch a bunch of stuff you might have missed like classics of different genres and such um so a lot of my favorite movies i saw for the first time this year are things we already discussed at length on the podcast. Like, I watched Psycho for the first time, and uh, David Lynch's The Elephant Man, and Douglas Sirk's All That Heaven Allows. So I've already sort of, like, gushed over those movies at length. Um, The one movie that really struck me that we haven't covered on the podcast so far is this movie Funeral Parade of Roses. Uh, Hmm. It's actually a theatrical release that was restored for like blu-ray quality and had a quick run in theaters it's from 1969 uh and similar to night of the demon it's like amazing to me this movie took so long to get like restored and re-released in like the sort of proper modern format it's basically a gory retelling of oedipus rex set in this trans brothel in japan in like you know hippie times uh because it is 1969 so it's got this like sort of French new wave aesthetic where everything's very immediate and sort of punk feeling. It's all very like handheld and sort of messy and actually reminds me a lot of Daisies. You know, that Czech movie where like the two girls just sort of like cause mischief and there's no real plot. Mm -hmm. And this one, it's this woman, uh, this like trans sex worker rising through the ranks of this brothel to where she goes from like a regular, but regularly requested worker to like the queen bee in this brothel And the movie doesn't really take that much seriously because it is an Oedipus retelling. It becomes violent by the end, just sort of by necessity because it is a tragedy. But there's all this like jokey meta commentary and all this like goofy, psychedelic playfulness with the visual style. And any moment that could like 
sort of gut you with like the tragic circumstances of the uh, brothel and like how these characters have to live on the fringe of society because they are trans sex workers is undercut by this like meta jokiness that makes it into the zany over the top good time and it feels like there aren't even that many queer narratives being made now outside maybe tangerine that are like half as like exciting and vibrant and like eccentrically over the top as funeral parade of roses uh which really just did blow my mind is like i don't know how i made it this far in life without having seen this movie before you bring up a really good point is that like there's is there a, a term for how there's like these like uh, gay weepies like there's so many lgbt focused movies are just about tragedy occurring to them there's like not that many mainstream or at least like movies getting pushed in front of me that uh, about lgbt people that aren't inherently about um the aids crisis that aren't inherently about um people in the community being discriminated against or beaten like it seems like a lot of them are not in any way celebratory not saying that this movie is of course but uh, at least like <laughs> vibrant and feeling like they, they're trying to understand the sort of like current running through the culture is like uh people that are both outsiders but like they're outsiders that are trying to take back what is normal I feel like we need more movies like that because it's just like it helps normalize something that is very normal, like <laughs> should be treated as normal. I had that struggle with Beach Rats earlier this year, which is like a really visually like interesting movie, especially in the way it like deals with like physical masculine communication. Like it's about all these beach bros in New Jersey and, you know, they have these like kind of rituals where like they're allowed to touch each other in certain ways, but uh, it's like too gay if they touch each other like intimately. Uh, you know, like, punches on the shoulder are fine, but not any sort of, like, other intimate communication. But the movie sort of goes into this, like, tragic, like, coming-of-age narrative where the kid, like, discovers that he's actually, like, a queer person and, like, he doesn't know how to express that and still maintain his friends. And it's like, I saw this movie so many times in the 90s, I'm not sure why I need it now. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to, like, be hard on that movie just because such a precedent has been set before. But we are definitely on this, like, precipice now where we need other stories told, like, in that community where it's, like, more, I don't even want to say normalized, but, like, just open to different ideas and different tones. Like, I feel like that same tone has been driven into us for, like, 30, 40 years now that we really do need, like, a more open, like, chaotic expression of, like, youthful energy in the genre of, like, LGBT queer narratives and funeral parade of roses just really blew my mind because it doesn't fall into that queer weepy rut the way that you're describing like yeah really doesn't have any rules to play by so it's allowed to just do whatever it wants the fact that this came out in 69 and actually features a lot of like trans and gay street non-professional actors from japan is just mind-blowing like i don't even know how this was allowed to exist which is like the best kind of movie like you feel like you're getting away watching it like you feel like you're getting away with something mischievous i love that i love that that sort of like dangerous cinema where you're like you're like whoa, whoa, whoa hold on this came in this came out in what year um right. i don't i don't know enough about japan culture to say you know if they progressed faster than we did on on gay rights or if they just i assume it's a completely divergent sense of progression i'm hoping that they are also getting better as we are getting better but it, it is fascinating to see these artifacts where you're like 
it changes your perspective on what a culture could be and how you envision a culture. I have one question. Uh, is the sex work portrayed as uh, sexy and exploitive or is it treated more as uh, just like it's that's what they're doing right now? Oh, man, there's so many close up shots of just flesh like out of context and like sensual feminized flesh like, you know, a shower scene or just a pan across a hip curve or something that's played completely straight and for like a sensual reaction and then yes that's intercut with like violence or humor or some kind of undercut way later but the movie's definitely playing with the blurred lines between gender identification and all these different things and there's definitely like plenty of moments that are played straight for sensuality in a way that's not at all like undercutting its point and basically what you were just saying now about like cultural context like I feel like it's supposed to be transgressive in that way. Like, the movie's kind of elbowing you, like, eh, eh? You see, like, <laughs> all bodies are sexy in the right context. Uh, but it's it, it kind of reminds me of, like, John Waters in, the, uh, in Baltimore in the early 70s. Like, I don't think Baltimore was specifically, like, inviting to his style, you know? Like, he's being a transgressive filmmaker when he's mul- making multiple maniacs or something like that. But in the same way, it's like, well, these people did exist, and... It's kind of fascinating that they were able to release a full feature-length product within that environment and get away with it. It's very transgressive. Yeah, I love that. And it's also these artifacts where you're like, it's nice to be able to, uh, you know, uh, another service that I think we provide on our show and you provide in your show. Marcus Jones provides on Jean-Paul Van Damme and as well as Crush Celluloid. Sort of uh, trash filters. <laughs> and it's nice <laughs> that like you can like, dig back and find these old examples of uh, a culture being represented that doesn't always get the best representation because usually you think like well if they're not making the movies now though you know what do we got to watch that actually represents us well as a community and you're like well there's a couple other movies that we found here uh you had to dig for them a little bit but we found them um so that's a it's a valuable service you're finding because while hollywood um shits the bed and failing to give like more movies like Tangerine a space, we uh, can at least find some old movies that can sort of um, pass the time before we wait for Hollywood to catch up and be like, this is a real audience that wants to see themselves represented, and they don't just want to see it represented in this sort of like staid, tragic terms. Yeah, and I can't remember which company put out the recent theatrical run and the, the DVD for this, or the Blu-ray for this, but it wasn't like Vinegar Syndrome or like Criterion or any of the usual suspects. Like it was some sort of outsider distribution company. So I'm just very grateful that this movie was able to be seen on the big screen and now like restored in this like, you know, whatever 4K format or whatever the (sighs) Blu-ray releases in. Uh, It's totally worth watching. I love that we live in a time where it's just like, everything could get a 4k re-release i just bought a vinegar syndrome copy of christmas evil and i'm so (laughs) excited to not watch that movie on a shitty vhs transfer again it's so amazing when you get to see a movie clearly for the first time when you're so used to seeing it on like tv broadcast or like vhs like haze you know yeah there's so much detail you're missing in that kind of release in uh, Spooktober this month, I mentioned I, I watched a movie called Messiah of Evil, which I adored, really, really loved. But uh, it looks like poop, and mm-hmm. that nobody has been able. It came out. It's by the same writer director, uh, um, a man, female, a male, female uh, writer director team. 
the same year that they wrote American Graffiti, this Messiah of Evil came out. And I have no idea why nobody has scooped up that movie, but like I I watched it. It's so good that it like shines through the tra- the shitty transfer quality. But that doesn't mean I'm like happy with the transfer quality. <laughs> so I'm happy. I'm excited. We live in an age where like I can guarantee you in like four months. Mo- now that I've mentioned the movie, in like four months, somebody will be like Messiah of Evil coming out on Vinegar Syndrome, Synapse, Acre Bay, whatever. Yeah, the hive mind is definitely stronger now than it's ever been before. Like, once you put an idea out there, it, it gains momentum. And our particular hive mind, where we just keep watching the same movies without telling each other, is getting stronger as well. So I think we can get enough band enough of us together to talk about a specific movie that, like, we could bump its SEO results enough where, like, Criterion's like, yeah, we should we should release Night of the Demon. <laughs> um, and today we're actually talking about a few movies that I had seen. Well, one of them in particular I watched a lot in high school on VHS, and it was just, like, very strange to see it again, like, digitally restored for this episode. And I feel like the other movies on the list, which I hadn't seen before, other people had that same uh, experience with them, where, like, it's only gotten clearer over time as physical media has gotten better. And like you said earlier, we are talking about movies about cat people today. Uh, specifically movies titled Cat People and other films that are not titled Cat People but are about cat people. (laughs) I would like to note, not to plug myself, but I would like to note that uh, this basically is taking the place of an entire month of We Love to Watch of what I wanted to do. (laughs) I wanted to cover Cat People, the remake, and Sleepwalkers. I wanted to to note that that is a hilarious thing that we're just like, oh yeah, and I just watched them all and now we're going to talk about it. I'm still getting what I want. Yeah, you guys do um, one episode a week, so you delve a lot deeper into individual titles than we do. Uh, but it is really funny, like whenever that overlaps, because you know we we try to do two a month, and we probably do three to five movies every episode, and there's still so much overlap there, even though we're on different like schedules like that. And yeah, this is great synergy to be able to like we had the idea in a parallel thinking way and it's just great to actually be able to overlap for real for once instead of just like hey we both covered that in the same month (laughs) without even really thinking about it (laughs) yep 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 uh and all those cat people are coming up to you right now in the end robbie and his mother always had to run for one night the men would come in their old cars men with lights and guns and to the boy and his mother their curses and their screams of rage always sound the same like the laughter of cruel gods. The time of happiness, too brief to be anything but golden, had run out. And now it's time for a regular Movie the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And for this Cat People-centric episode, Peter suggested that we watch a movie titled Sleepwalkers that I'd never seen before. Peter, what is Sleepwalkers? <laughs> so, uh, Sleepwalkers is a 1992 uh, Stephen King-Mick Garris ad- collaboration. Uh, Mick Garris was sort of Stephen King's guy. So, before I talk about Mick Garris real quick, I just want to point out that uh, I think Mick Garris is probably a very sweet guy. Uh, his, on his podcast, he, he seems like a really, really nice dude. But I don't really like any of his movies. 
<laughs> uh, probably his biggest, his most uh, transcendent movie is uh, Hocus Pocus. People love Hocus Pocus. Mm. Uh, he worked on that one. Um, but he did Sleepwalkers with Stephen King. He did uh, the Stand miniseries. He did the Shining miniseries with Stephen King. Riding the Bullet and uh desperation and bag of bones like he was kind of he was kind of stephen king's guy when stephen king was like heavily heavily adapting his own source material and so sleepwalkers was a movie they did together which is uh about uh an incestuous mother father or mother uh son pairing if it was a mother father it wouldn't be incestuous at all uh as a mother son pairing (laughs) of uh cat people who are also afraid of cats we'll get into it who uh, hunt to restore their life force and keep going, and they just moved to a new town, and what, uh, the son has targeted a, a girl for them to both drain, and has decided, like, that's going to be the girl, and is uh, very successfully hunting her. And then uh, in the moment where he's about to take her over, things go wrong, she manages to get away. A battle ensues where he's trying to get to her. She goes home. There's a home invasion where the cat people, the mother-son uh, pair, uh, invade the home. And uh, a battle ensues wherein both the mother and the son cat people die. Trying to get both revenge on uh, the girl for trying to uh, push back against them using her as a, a you know blood and spirit bag. And uh, just so they can keep living. And they kind of both die because they fail to uh, to feed themselves. And it's Mick Garris, so it's done in the most hacky way possible. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting to pair up with the other Cat People movies because uh, it's not as good as them. But it is like, it's taking the incestuous angle and just putting it front and center. There is so much making out and fucking between uh, this cougary mom and her buff, uh, her uh, hunky son, who I don't know the names of, Brian Krause, and I don't remember the mother's name. She's wonderful in the movie, though. Yeah, she's very good. She has a kind of, um, who's the lady from Carrie? A Sissy Spacek kind of vibe, you know? She's, like, very delicate, but also, like, creepy. Yes. Uh, her name is Alice Kriege. Uh, Craig, Alice Kriege. Uh, and she's been been in a lot of stuff over the years. Chariots of Fire, it looks like. She's, uh, she's also in Silent Hill playing another, like, just creepy matriarch. Uh, the Silent Hill movie, which I'm the only fan of. And she's really wonderful in the movie. I think Brian Krause is a little one note. Like, he's just like, I'm a handsome guy. And then as soon as it flips a coin, he's like, and now I'm a mean guy. Um, But what did you think of Sleepwalkers, Brandon? This is actually, like, my favorite kind of movie. Uh, That's what I was thinking about when I watched (laughs) it. Like, it already dares you to hate it in the first scene. Uh, It starts with the incest. Oh, yeah. The first scene, like, the mother and son are slow dancing together before you even really know that they're cat people. (laughs) They're they're slow dancing, (laughs) and then uh, they have incestuous sex, and then the room glows purple. And that's, like, the first sign you get that something supernatural is going on. And maybe even before that, there's an introduction where there's a bunch of house cats hanging from nooses. Uh, and these cops are sort of casually referencing and making fun of the fact that all these house cats have been, like, strangled to death in these, like, little tiny ropes. So the movie's already, like, really grotesque and, like, daring you to hate it from there. And it starts at that insane point, and it just gets incrementally more and more insane, and then just ends at its craziest point. Which I, I love that kind of plot structure where you can sort of, like, 
alienate the audience out front and then outdo yourself scene to scene and completely like leave people behind more and more so as it goes along my favorite thing about that kind of plot structure is by the end you're just like very excited still like i can't believe i just watched that like it's a uh, it's almost like a roller coaster ride you know like i don't know what turn was coming next but i was so excited every time it happened uh so what i gotta say is that i'm a big stephen king fan i've read a ton of his books like dozens of his books this is an original script that he wrote for sleepwalkers for mick Garris specifically to adapt and one of the problems with Stephen King adapting his own source material, Stephen King writing for the screen, is that I think what makes Stephen King magic is, A, how he gets to his ridiculous uh, his ridiculous conclusions, his ridiculous third acts, and B, uh, what's happening on the margins character-wise, which also, I should note, the B, the, what happens to the characters margins-wise, can also be the worst shit in his books, the most backwards, regressive stuff. And not him on screen, he's always had trouble with getting humanity in there and getting a, a, a sense of balance and like, why is Tanya so, so into dating uh, our, our cat boy? Why is she like so throwing herself at him? But like in the Stephen King book, it would probably be pretty convincing. You probably have like 50 pages where he's just like getting into the nitty gritty. But in the movie, he just kind of has to like go to the crazy shit, which has its own charms because Mick Garris is has no sense of subtlety. Uh, he has very little sense of tack. He's very he's a very hacky filmmaker. But him having to like steam ahead to the next scene where you're like, well, now she just wants to fuck this guy. <laughs> it's like charming in its own way. I totally get what you're saying, Brandon. I actually think the movie's strength is in that villain character. Like, I think he does have an allure that is legitimate just because he is a handsome, blonde, blue-eyed, like, square-jawed American man. Oh, yeah. I think the movie's, like, kind of... I don't know if it's intentionally or not, but it's kind of like a feminist, like, fairy tale in that way. When we say cat people... We should probably define that up front. These are like cats, right? Like it's yes. like a werewolf, but instead of turning into a wolf, you turn into like a human-sized panther creature. Yes. It's like a werecat thing, but it's also more of a vampiric thing where like when they get aroused and they get excited by the idea of a kill, that's when they do their transformation. But their faces are very cat-like. They've got the sort of snouts. And I think what's interesting about cats as like a concept, it's almost like I don't like to get gender binary when I don't have to, but I feel like it's gendered in a way where, like, werewolves are, like, pure masculinity. Like, the masculine sexual id comes out in the werewolf character. And in the other cat people movies we're going to be talking about later, especially it leans more towards the feminine, where, like, when these female characters get aroused or become angry, they become these, like, monstrous feline creatures it's the same like cats and dogs gender binary people set up for like no reason in general yeah yeah so it kind of makes sense like why shelly from twin peaks like the waitress from twin peaks uh who plays the love interest in this movie would be attracted to this sort of jock character who has this sort of like sensitive side he like writes these short stories in his creative writing class that she finds erotic just because he's like such an interesting out-of-towner because these cat people have to move from town to town every time someone discovers that they're incestuous werecats so he's also just like a handsome jock character like he's a very american hunk and i think the movie has an intentional point in showing the danger in that there's kind of a danger in already being attracted to this person and accepting any sort of weird eccentricities about them because you find them hunky and 
one of the big set pieces of the film is this date rape scene at a graveyard where she finally acts on her attraction to him and brings him to a graveyard and he becomes too aggressive because he wants to basically like you said earlier like vampirically suck her soul out of her blood yeah. uh, through this like purple ooze that he sucks out of her mouth and the scene goes too far and once she says no we need to stop and slow down he doesn't stop there's a direct analogy in like how teenage sexuality goes where like just because you give consent in one way this like handsome white boy can't get away with everything just because he gets like a yes tentatively at the beginning of it you know and there's a pretty big interaction with a black cop directly after that where he gets away with killing a black cop and oh, i yeah. think there's like, like a sort of like white privilege white handsome jock villain at the center of this movie and i'm sure some of it was intentional i'm not sure all of it was but it's kind of interesting how this like sleazy incest werecat movie has a uh, sort of political bent to it as well and that's stephen king uh and it's also mick garris um for all of my i have fun at teasing Stephen King for having some, you know, regressive stereotypes in his movies. He's always well-meaning. Like, when he has a magical Negro stereotype in his movies, he genuinely is like, I think black people are wonderful, and I wanted to have this character that's larger than life. And you're like, but Stephen, just don't, just don't do that. Just don't, uh, d- okay. And then the movie comes out, it's the Green Mile. But with this, it's it, it, you can see the sort of scene showing where Stephen King is not saying, like, the all-American football hero is our hero. The all-American football hero is just this cheap facade wherein somebody can use... He can use the fact that he's, he's, he's uh, living under a privilege, which is that uh, we set up standards of beauty. Patriarchy has set up standards of beauty, white patriarchy in particular, uh, that makes Brian Krause you know, the most attractive, most wanted man. Uh, And the fact that he is both, you know, he's got a sensitive side. He can write literature, but also he can think on his feet and he's like charming and he's like not too aggressive. But then once he can't get his way, he turns into this like vicious monster and all of that charm just gets inverted into malice. Which is something that, you know, people have been doing for years and years. American Psycho was even sort of like that. But uh, seeing it in this form is so great because you're not getting really any hints that he's evil during all the meet-cute date stuff. You're not really getting any hints of the the malice. And you kind of like, it feels like McGarris is like, yeah, you don't always know when you see a monster right away because they're monsters. And it helps take a lot of the guilt and the blame off of Tanya for getting sucked into the situation because all she wanted to do was be a teenager. She wanted to engage with somebody she thought was hot and go make out with them at a graveyard, which is like never in the movie treated as like a judgmental thing. They never put the guilt on her. It's always put on the true people, the monsters that sucked her in, the succubi that like pulled her in. And yet the movie follows their point of view more than it does hers. You get more um, domestic scenes of like what the home life between the two cat people, mother and son, are like than you get what... I keep calling her Shelly from Twin Peaks. I don't know her real name. She also plays Betty's mom on the Riverdale show that's on right now. Madchen Amick? Oh, her being on Riverdale is pretty funny. Riverdale is really leaning yeah. into like Twin Peaks for teens, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's like Gossip Girl and uh, Twin Peaks like in a perfect marriage. But yeah, you get more of the home life between the two cat people than you get with his love interest. Um, and it's very like 
interesting how when he turns into a werecat and actually starts killing people or becomes like overly sexualized or wants to like suck her soul out of her mouth that's when he becomes like a traditional movie villain like he'll start saying these sort of goofy arnold schwarzenegger type one-liners about the situation they're in together and that's not part of his personality at all until he's like becomes hyper violent he starts becoming jokey and jocular and this like really weird way whenever he's angry or horny that uh doesn't really show in the more um idyllic scenes where he and his love interest are sort of hitting on each other in an americana like teenagers kind of way yeah but you do see him the the fact that he's making jokes and the fact that he's trying to like be jocular and be sort of like haha does really help subvert the idea that like yeah everything everything you found about that was cute about him that he was a writer that he was you know buff that he had these these sparkling blue eyes he knew when to shut up all that stuff was actually just a big con and like even in his his hunt he's still putting on a bit of a show he's still this like he's not just he didn't just like immediately turn into just like a monster monster just all snarling teeth he's uh, all of a sudden he's a, a, a snarling monster who's also trying to get a last laugh before he tears your heart out and there's something really funny not only about him being like this super privileged powerful character but that the weakness of him and his mother is just like the common house cat one of the heroes of this film is named clovis the attack cat yes which is like a cop's like right-hand man that's just like a you know pretty standard feline that one scratch from his paw can like rip this man's like rubbery werecat face right off and i really like that vulnerability sort of being built in um i don't know if you've ever seen it but do you know the movie a night of a thousand cats no it's a very schlocky like animal attack film from the 70s but you know it's like pre-animal cruelty laws in some ways so like there's just like tons of cats on the screen and like you know, a character will be running away in fear and they'll like throw a cat onto them from off screen. So it looks like the cat's leaping onto them. And I feel like this movie has some like interactions like that as well, where he's like running away from these house cats that are just sort of swarming around the screen. And I love that there's that vulnerability built into this like vampire legend. And I like the idea that, that cats seem to be unwittingly sort of setting a natural order back in place. Like these guys have broken a natural order. In, in many ways obviously they're in this, an incestuous relationship that's like that's a part of the reason they also show uh more of the their home life than of uh, tanya's home life is because tanya's home life is sort of set up as a pretty stereotypical home life she's a virgin girl who gets good grades and her family is you know her dad's a little distant but he still loves her and her mom's you know this ambitious woman and like you get more characterization in the mom than the dad or anybody else but um, the, the, they spend a lot of time with their home life, this incestuous home life, because I think McGarris and, St- and Stephen King really want to point out how they have broken a natural order. And these cats seem to be attracted to them, not just by chance, but because like almost like their negativity is being is attracting a positivity because the universe needs to balance itself back out. Like they're being hunted accidentally by these fairly passive creatures in a lot of ways. And it feels like there's, like, a larger backstory there. Like, they reference, like, oh, maybe there's more cat people out there. Like, it feels like it's, this is one small piece of, like, a larger mythology. And that's one of Stephen King's, like, bigger faults as a writer is that he is not tied to brevity in any way. Like, he can't tell a small story. Like, his 
his novels and his uh, longer series all have these like thousands and thousands of pages attached to them, and I could easily see him going into like a twelve hundred page novel on cat people, like as a concept. And that kind of took me off by surprise when Ron Perlman, who shows up as this very grotesque police officer who is like a monster in and of himself and is known in one of his primary roles like early in his career as the Beast in Beauty and the Beast, who was like this cat-like creature on the TV show. And you kind of expect this surprise to come up like, oh, Ron Perlman was acting as a villain this whole time as a secret cat person who was either going to like take out this coven of cat people that he had uncovered or aid them along in retrieving this girl from their evil deeds. But that never comes. And it just seems like a weird inclusion to have Ron Perlman in this movie and not have him like be sprung on you as a cat person since those were to- I was totally expecting. For a movie that's 91 minutes, I expected more twists like that, but it is pretty straightforward. It's, it's just couple comes to town uh you know this man this son and and mother couple comes to town and all of a sudden like they're hunting the single girl who you she he has marked before anything he's looking at a, a yearbook photo of her like he's already marked her and the movie is mostly just pursuing that one girl trying to get that one girl uh, into his clutches and everybody's standing in his way the movie might have been able to use like a couple weird twists or like ron perlman becoming a cat person or them somehow throwing the police department into disarray in that way like or maybe like a terminator one twist where like they go take apart an entire police department but it, it's pretty straightforward people get in their way they mostly smash them down and then at the end they lose because of cats because cats are heroes all along and kind of like the weirdest twist in the movie in general is just like the inclusion of cameos from horror <laughs> legends. Like the biggest surprise I had from just following the plot along was just like, oh, why are we packing this with cameos from Joe Dante, Clive Barker, Toby Hooper, John Landis? John Landis. Yeah, Stephen King himself even appears in a cameo. That really surprised me more so than anywhere the plot went. But I still felt like the plot went through this like exponentially more insane trajectory where it just got more and more heightened until it ended his most ridiculous point. But yeah, I think it actually benefits the movie to have all those like horror cameos in there because those are all people who, you know, we respect as like genre film enthusiasts, but also are inclined to make these like trashier, um, not especially well-considered plots into feature-length films. Even though they've all made, like, impeccably great horror films before, all those people have also made movies that are, like, very stupid on, like, a conceptual level the way this one is. And it's kind of beautiful to see them all, like, collected in this one insane picture. I agree. It's, uh, it is kind of fun, especially because, like, the most fun thing about McGarris, which you should definitely check out McGarris's horror podcast. What's it called? It is... Postmortem. With uh, Mick Garris. Oh, I've heard of that one. Yeah. It's good. It's good. It uh, So, Postmortem is him inter- interviewing all of his, his old friends from the Masters of Horror group. And Mick Garris was, of course, the dude who brought together Masters of Horror. He's, like, the key producer. He was the pitch man. He's, he sounds like a dude who's really good in a producer's room. He could, like, get a good pitch together for why something should happen. And then... The, the even if the movie is not particularly great or the miniseries is not particularly great like he can get them done and it and uh that feels very akin to that like 
he's like, oh, I made friends with all these people. We have a, we have a, you know, dinner and drinks date every month or whatever. And uh, yeah, I needed some small roles in this movie. So I cast all my friends. Like there's something sweet about that, that, that uh, is, warms uh, us nerds hearts. Yeah, there was like a time where like, I don't know, John Carpenter and Toby Hooper were like not seen as the heights of like uh, creative cinema. Uh, they've gotten more um, rehabilitated culturally in the years since, but this movie still feels like that trashy straight to VHS, even though it did play in theaters. It, it has that sort of like immediacy of like only horror nerds would dig this. Um, and I was wholly enraptured with it in that way. Like it's very unapologetically trashy, even just in concept. Like it's a trashier version of Cat People from 1982, which was already a trashier version of a well-respected film. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You really have to be like deeply mired in this kind of uh, schlock and uh, schlock and awe to be on its wavelength and i very much appreciated like every second of it in that way good i'm glad you enjoyed the movie that i brought because it was a movie i loved growing up and then when i was watching it i was like this movie is not as good as i remembered but it is it definitely is a very functional movie it gets through its beats and it's got a lot of fun with how it it's got a lot of fun with how the plot beats move in a way that i think some of these movies can get bogged down in in the middle section with like 40 minutes of nonsense uh this is just like, you know, there's the date, and then this date leads directly into this date, and then the movie just switches on a dime, and all of a sudden it's a monster pursuit movie for the rest of the movie about halfway through. And I found that aspect of it really charming, uh, but it has some really cheesy effects. All of the, all of the, uh, the car disappearing or the car changing into a different car stuff is like, wait, what, Steven, what were you doing here? That feels like something that came from a book that, but instead you're like, oh, it's just Stephen King. He loves classic cars and he wanted to have two different classic cars in this movie. So I don't know. It feels more like uh, from the mind that brought you Maximum Overdrive than, you know, from the mind that brought you The Shining to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's got a very like hair metal 80s like cheese to it in those moments, but not necessarily in a way that isn't charming. Like I, I still found that funny. Yeah. Uh, especially in the car chase scene with Clovis the Attack Cat and his cop buddy when his face changes several different forms from like a baby to a demon to a cat person uh in this sort of like stop motion mess it's like a moment that's like organically insane oh yeah <laughs> a lot of movies that reach that sort of idiocy and heightened absurdity do it on accident and i feel like stephen king was earnestly being like provocatively nuts in that moment oh yeah it's a uh it's a very 90s sort of thrill because it's a little bit there's a little bit of early cgi in there but there's also practical effects and stop motion so it has this this sort of like slap together monster appeal but it's more charming than any of the purely cgi stuff that would come even five years later yeah, and um, I'm really glad you made me watch it, too, because I've been wanting to watch it since I read uh, Nathan Rabin's piece on The Dissolve about it, like, years ago. And it's just one of those things that's been on the back burner forever, so I really didn't need that push. And it definitely lived up to his, like, um, write-up of it being, like, sort of an insane forgotten gem. Exciting story of a modern girl 
cursed by an ancient legend, the legend of the cat. Women whose kiss means death, whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. But yeah, so we're, we're going to be covering the, the two Cat People movies that are separated by, what, 40 years? Yeah, the original Cat People movie came out in 1942. Uh, it's a Val Luton-produced film, which means something. Like, usually, he's, he's kind of like Roger Corman. Like, the producer is the auteur in some ways uh, with Val Luton movies. Like, I, I can't tell you off the top of my head who directed Cat People in 42, uh, but like... Everything you associate with the film, like the Val Luton shadows that crawl up the walls and like the tense foot chases and everything are very much assigned to the producer. And then 40 years later, you have a 1980s remake of Cat People that is super cheesy and hyper violent. And that's the movie I grew up loving. Not only because it's set in New Orleans, but also because it's sort of a salacious, like gross 80s horror movie in an excessive way. And the two movies really can't couldn't be more different, even though they are technically remakes of each other. Uh, yeah, it, it, the entire incest plot is basically added to the the original. Was just if she has sex, if she gets aroused, if she gets too enticed, Irina, then she will turn into a cat person. The the, the remake takes that concept and adds on that uh, if she has sex with her brother. Uh, that can, like, push away the demon. Like, she won't transform, and she won't go on these, like, bloody lust lust rages uh, for a time. And her brother is clearly very gung-ho about it, uh, Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> and it is typical Malcolm McDowell insane sadistic mode the mode that you mostly see malcolm mcdowell in he's very good in it but it is it is very much a character for him um and she is not up for the whole incest thing yeah uh it takes a little convincing in that way and honestly like in my memory i had thought of the movie as sort of like an all-out incest fest the way that sleepwalkers is uh but it's more of a slow build to that transgression over the course of like a salacious movie but one that takes its time getting to the payoff of that kind of like gross horrific kind of sexuality i do want to sort of like take them one at a time though the val luton movie from the 40s this is a new picture for me i had just seen that for the first time earlier this year and this was a rewatch uh within a few months from the first time i had seen it and i gotta say just because my brain is broken from growing up on 80s schlock that I don't appreciate this movie quite as much as the remake with Malcolm McDowell and Natasha Kinski. Uh, the 1940s one I find impeccably visually interesting, and it's a nice, short, little, high-class horror piece uh, where the excess of the genre is sort of kept at bay. The same setup where if a character becomes too horny or too angry, they turn into a a werecat is still in this movie, and it's amazing that that was part of the 1940s lexicon. Like, the idea that there's this feminine version of the werewolf legend in this, like, high-class Val Luton picture, I find very interesting. But I gotta say, like, I took so many more notes on rewatching the 80s version that I've already seen a thousand times before than I did in this, like, more simple picture what is your relation to these two films? Like, is there one you're more weighted to in interest level? 
I hadn't seen either of these movies until I saw Cat People last, uh, last Spooktober, and then I saw the remake uh, this Spooktober, because I liked the original so much. Uh, for one, I think Cat People is a terrible title. It should have been Werecats or something, because Cat People just sounds like uh, sad, lonely people that only live with their cats. It just doesn't like really like entice you on any horror level. Are you a cat person, Peter? I like cats. Uh, I'm a do- but I would never have one. I'm a I'm a dog guy in terms of uh, actually in my home. But I like I like cats. I mean, my allergies are specifically cat related, not dog related. So uh, I would never actually have one. And I also don't like that sort of like oh well they're just gonna be a dick to you now. And you're like, but I fed them like ten. 10 minutes ago, scratching her belly, and then they scratched my hand. I'm like, well, yeah, she, she's just not in the mood right now. And you're like, well, okay. And then I walk up to my dog, and my dog's like, hey, what's up? What? What's up? How you doing? Uh, Brandon, what's your what's your pet history? What, what, where are you leaning? Uh, I grew up with fish as a kid. Um, I wasn't allowed to have, like, a breathing <laughs> mammal in the house. But in college, I was... Uh, kind of depressed and detached from a lot of things that were happening uh there's a brief period where i moved away from new orleans to go to baton rouge and i felt very alienated out there and i actually Mm -hmm. adopted a kitten and it was like the first like you know normal house pet i ever had and i had him for about seven years and he ended up being this giant black like 18 pound behemoth of a cat and he was a total (laughs) bully and he was so bad for my allergies and i like hated uh the fact that i couldn't breathe every day but i loved having that kind of companion for the first time and i i do generally love cats uh in that way uh even when they are super mean to you i kind of respect their like disinterest in your opinion um but like right now i live with a dog and i i'm able to breathe on a daily basis and my dog is always super happy to see me so you know i I don't have that like cat person dog person dichotomy within me like i love them both uh, and I, I yeah. do kind of miss having a cat around, but I, I also enjoyed the ability to breathe on a daily basis. It's huge. Breathing is huge for me in particular. Um, <laughs> without it, uh, my lungs wouldn't inflate. I wouldn't be able to live. Uh, it's just a personal thing. Uh, so I, I'm not huge into living with cats, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I'm, a, I'm a, of a, I like them both. But I, I, uh, I really do like for the original better, even though I'm more of an 80s, an 80s aesthetic person. I really like uh, how certain 80s movies feel very traditional in their uh, cinematic approach, but then they um, can go completely off the rails in terms of what the plot structures can be, because like the reins kind of got taken off with New Hollywood and what you could do with movies. And in the 80s, people started to look for more transgressive theming and more blood and guts and sex and that like i think opened up new territories in a way that like the original universal movies hadn't had opened up for them yet but the original cat people the jacques tournier violet movie is uh where my my heart lies and it's not only just a uh general 80s aesthetic it's a very specific two film arc that cat people comes out of there was a push from a studio to remake rko pictures for a new audience and the two pictures came out in the same year they were both 1982 one was john carpenter remaking the thing from another world into the thing into this sort of like gross out limited space thriller that's based largely on paranoia in a way that the original the thing from another world was more of an alien invasion picture specifically and i know you've covered both movies on your podcast before yep the thing's my favorite movie yeah the thing is your favorite film of all time yep uh and honestly cat people fills that space for me as well or like i have a very specific love for this 
and it's from that same studio remaking this uh, highfalutin Val, Val Luton picture into this like grotesque 80s like, monstrosity with like incestuous werecat sex uh, that the original didn't necessarily have the context for. And it, this actually saddens me even more than the uh, failed experiment with John Carpenter's um, Halloween trilogy where Season of the Witch was supposed to be like sort of a reset button that turned Halloween into like an anthology series. Like, I really wish that more of these, like, RKO classics were remade for an 80s audience. And this is the one that makes me sad, because I, I do attach to this Cat People movie uh, very personally in the same way that you attach to the thing. And it is a good movie. I like them. I like both Cat People versions more, uh, and it does kind of surprise me that I prefer the 1940s more conservative movie. But there is a noble quest uh, in adapting these for a new audience. I'm not a, uh, a remake Puritan in any sense. Uh, I really like when movies are remade for a new audience, especially 40 fucking years later, as was true of Cat People. Um, and I especially like how they took it and then they uh, affixed this new apparatus on it, the incest plot. It doesn't feel like they're just like adding like, well, this time she's got a funky robot friend. Like, it doesn't feel like some unnecessary thing. It adds a genuine sense of familial conflict that the original lacked between the sister relationship uh, in the original. That, that familial conflict of like, this is our past. Uh, no, this is what I want is to be an American. I want to be this kind of American who has, you know, a husband and like, a, he's the only one for me. That sort of conflict is in both of them. It's just elaborated in, in very different ways. And the remake being two hours is part of the reason that I have problems with it because there's so much room to play with. And yet at times it feels like they're treading water like like oh we get it people are turning into cat people why is there so much in between here and the final conflict between the daughter and the it feels like the daughter sorry the sister is uh positioned against the brother so early on and then they don't have their final conflict until late in the movie i would definitely agree that the uh sort of like american immigration is like a reset button on your personality and your personal history is a lot stronger in the Val Luton picture. Um, and I think we should get in the plot of that one a little more now. You basically follow this woman, Lorena. Oh, it's Irina in the original. Irina? Yeah. So you have Irina traveling from Serbia to America, and she is emigrating here to leave behind this cultural background where she's from this village of satan worshiping witches that practice this black magic and as we said earlier part of that curse of like her background is whenever she becomes horny she trans or angry she transforms into this you know giant human-sized cat uh you know akin to like a cougar or a leopard so she leads this like solitary life like without romance where she like go to the city zoo and sketch the leopard that they have on display there and it's kind of like this like douglas sirk women's picture before douglas sirk was even a thing uh where it's not even like a strictly like trashy horror film in any way it's like this tragedy that this woman can't know true love or can't know intimacy with a man because she has to like live this solitary life to prevent this is like violent monster from coming out within her and the movie develops its plot around an american man sort of latching onto her uh just sort of spotting her at the zoo as she like sketches this leopard and uh watches her interest in the leopard and he decides like oh i want her to be my wife i find her so interesting i'm drawn to her 
and he can't understand that she has hardship. Uh, one of the weirder things about the movie is that he says like to her, like, I've never been unhappy before. Uh, once he marries her and brings her into the fold in his like sort of Americanized macho life, he can't understand why she's not happy and ready to have babies and even consummate the marriage with him because she has this other mental block outside of their relationship that has nothing to do with him that's all internal and he just can't even fathom the idea that she has this inner struggle and i feel like that's even more so than the transformation of like her turning into a cat person like that's the struggle of the movie is their relationship tragically not being able to be consummated because she has this like outside mental cultural even physical block stopping them from like being a traditional marriage and she kind of goes along with it because i think she's that's the tragedy of the movie is that arena is genuinely in love with her husband um but her husband is just you sort of hint that oliver is so out of it uh, he is so missing the point very often, and he, he accidentally steps all over her feelings at times, like when she's going to therapy on his request, and then she like is he's like sharing details of the therapy with um, Alice, his co-worker-future wife. The movie keeps making a point that he's kind of like a, a, a dummy, like he's kind of naive in how he approaches <laughs> their relationship, and like he, there's all these red flags about her, and not that she's foreign. The movie doesn't seem to think that her being foreign is that much of a red flag, it's the fact that she is uh, foreign with this, these secrets that they didn't figure out before they got married. And she's not being forthcoming with him with this impossible secret, and he's not listening enough to like figure out the like geez, there's something else going on here. If anything, like, her being foreign seems like an allure for him. Oh, yes. The idea that she wants to, like, lure... She wants to, like, linger in the shadows and, like, have a drink with him after dark. Like, maybe her sexual morals are not as in line with, like, the modern single American woman is, like, a huge attraction to him. Uh, And he doesn't quite catch on to how those things might actually hint to larger gulfs in their ability to relate to one another yeah and uh, and at times you know he's like he finds the exoticism of it fun he likes going to like the the serbian restaurant for after they get married and he finds like some of her strangeness and her backstory sort of um fun in this yeah this sort of like colonialist ex- exoticism sort of way uh that would be not out of place if they had you know advertised this movie as having this like foreign beauty simone 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 simon as the lead uh because like that's what they did for out of lost souls with the the Catwoman. what was her name they do it right in the cover they say like and featuring the Catwoman. like come see this sexy foreign woman like she's nothing like what your you know your mom or your wife or your dude the girl next door looks like but this movie kind of avoids some of that by humanizing the tragedy of their broken relationship and the tragedy that Irina can never really get close to anybody without hurting them. And there's that other layer of like uh, Rosemary's Baby type medical and husbandry denial of a woman telling you that something's wrong. Like they keep sort of brushing aside her concerns about sexuality and anger. They're like, oh, you are sort of over-exaggerating or you're sort of like prone to whimsy. Uh, you don't really know what you're talking about. And of course, like, it turns out whenever she actually does get horny or angry, she really does become this monster. And there is a body count associated with that uh, transformation. And it 
only starts to show on the screen once he has an emotional affair with his coworker. We don't really get any sign that it's been like consummated or anything, but as soon as he like becomes infatuated with his coworker, she has a target for her uh, animalistic instincts and becomes this like sort of like human-sized leopard that you know stalks this woman at night, chasing her in the shadows or like stalking her by the poolside or uh, arranging her death in this sort of like nefarious way. That chase sequence uh, in the in the top of the second act, going to the third act, where Irina is pursuing Alice. So we should also mention Alice, who is uh, an important foil to Irina. Alice is, uh, you know, Oliver's co-worker. They've had a trust for years. They're very much, she's very much been friend-zoned, to borrow parlance, uh, where he's like, <laughs> doesn't really consider her a romantic partner, but they have so much in common and they're so close. But then as soon as his marriage starts falling apart, He's like, wait, this Alice chick is looking pretty nice now. Alice starts to be pursued by Irina because Irina is jealous. And you could read that also in the sort of global way that I was we were reading it before. Alice is this all-American gal. She's out in the workforce. She, you know, keeps regular hours. She's respectable. And she and most importantly, she has Oliver's attention. So she uh she uh, Irina stalks. Alice and in this these wonderful tracking shots, Jacques Tournier has a really great eye for for uh, movement of camera. These wonderful tracking shots and, and these this like there's like a sequence where a bus moves in front of uh, the action and you're like, what's going to happen when the bus finally passes? And then it, it you know, like as Brandon mentioned, it culminates in that scene where Alice jumps into a pool at her gym because she thinks that might keep her safe from whatever the hell it is that's pursuing her. Well, actually, the uh, bus scene is so iconic in, like, building tension in that, like, Hitchcockian kind of way uh, that it has its own name. It's called, like, the bus take, uh, where, like, a object comes out of nowhere and interrupts the tension that's built, uh, which I guess we would now just sort of call, like, a jump scare in a general sense, where, like, you're shocked out of your tension um, by, like, a stray cat in the garbage or a loud noise that's completely unrelated to the monstrous threat at hand. But the bus sort of screeching into the frame as she's being chased on foot uh, has become so ingrained in, like, modern horror tension building that it has its own title. It's the bus take. And it's kind of amazing that something as simple as a woman walking alone at night being stalked by a cat that may or may not be there has been, has sort of persisted for what almost like 80 years of cinema in the, in the years since and it's so relatable right the the idea like especially if you you know you live in a major city i live in a major city the idea that you could you're walking home one night and you're like is that guy following me or is it just like look like another guy or the idea of like you're walking from one end of your apartment to the other, and you're like, did I hear something in the room I just walked by? <laughs> it's something that's so relatable <laughs> on a human level, and Jacques Tournier decided to make a really elaborate sequence where he got to let a woman's paranoia play out, and uh, it scares the shit out of you because it's it's a long sequence. It's not just like, ah, there's a jaguar in the room. Um, it's like, oh, is there a monster there? Is there? Is there? And he makes you sit and stew in that dread. And I love that. It plays on your imagination um, in the bus scene and especially in the pool scene where there's like a brief flash of like a panther's shadow on the wall and it happens so quickly you're like, did I imagine that? And obviously there's like some sort of cat noises on the soundtrack that play into your imagination and help you like imagine a cat that's not even really there except for like a a brief flash in the shadows or like uh, her victim's 
robe that she puts on after she gets out of the swimming pool is like slashed. The movie is like allowing you to fill in the spaces, which just even Val Luton's general way of playing with shadows and like the shape of like 2D animation in this like black and white format, being able to like hint at things that aren't even necessarily explicit and allowing your mind to fill in the gaps is like very interesting. And I, I do understand why people high this hold this movie in such high regard because even though it is like so short and so simple, it, it does allow a lot of like room for your mind to complete the puzzle. It's not over explained in the way that the eighties movie is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a great point because at 73 minutes, the movie is really lean and those sequences like that just stick out in your mind even more so because then all you're thinking about when it's over is just like, yeah, I mean like uh, for those, those, you know, half the uh, four quarter of the runtime, I was incredibly tense. And what's really interesting is that the movie did have a uh, a sequel in Curse of the Cat People from two years later, uh, directed by Robert Wise, who did like The Body Snatcher and The Day the Earth Stood Still. And the movie is even more stubborn than the original Cat People. You know, the original has that sort of uh, women's picture, like drama, melodrama about like not being able to consummate a marriage and not being able to work out this like romance just because there's this sort of like mental, even spiritual divide between the husband and wife. And then the sequel doubles down by not even having any horror at all. <laughs> the sequel yeah. is like largely about like the imagination and not about werecats at all. It is such a weird sequel, and it kind of, I got sucked into the sort of uh, linear uh, expectations of what a sequel to the movie would be. Um, I just watched it because it came on the flip side of whatever DVD I bought, and I didn't expect it to be this, like, almost children's movie with about, like, it takes place at Christmas time that has, like, almost no connection to the original. It almost feels like it's making fun of you because the, there's a sequence very early on where a cat jumps out of a tree at some kids. And, and then there's, like, no more cat shit for the rest of the movie. The only thing you get is, like, a the ghost of Irina. You get the ghost of Irina, but she could have been... The movie could have... They, it could have been called anything. It just happens to have three... The three main characters from the original are in this. Uh, Oliver and Alice are played by Kent Smith and Jane Randolph, uh, respectively. And they're, what's supposed to have been assumed is that after the trauma of the first movie, they hooked up had a baby, and now that baby is being stalked by the ghost of Irina. And it's like, they could have changed some names and literally this would have nothing to do with cat people. I'm mixed <laughs> on this movie, I think, more than you. I think you're into this movie quite a bit more than I am, I should say. I do like it. Um, it reminds me of like a very delicate, non-horror version of The Bad Seed, uh, which is a movie I love to death. I don't like this one quite as much, but um, actually our mutual friend, Rick Kelly, who uh, runs the Luddite Robot blog, I was talking to him about it, and he explained it this way. He says, the first one doesn't have any cat people in its horror. The sequel doubles down by not having any horror in it at all, uh, which is <laughs> like totally true. Uh, it's kind of like, I don't know, last week episode we talked about uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. There's a couple like horror stories told in that film. And this one has the same deal. Like, there's an old lady who has her large Marge moment and scares the child by telling, like, an old-fashioned ghost story. But it's totally self-contained. And most of the movie is more of a struggle about, like, a child's imagination and when and when not it's socially acceptable to give in to fancy. 
uh, she's allowed to like wish on a birthday candle, but she's not allowed to frolic and dream about the lives of butterflies. It's it's more about a child navigating like when imagination is okay. Uh, and yeah, I didn't love this movie totally, but I do see what like Rick Kelly sees in it. Um, and I do see why it deserves a look. It's a very strange outlier within like the cat people mythology. It's something worth watching, but I think it needs to be watched with the caveat that it is nothing like the first because I had not heard that when I watched it uh, last year or this this fall. And I um, really, really think the movie was scuttled by expectations. And that is entirely something they placed on themselves by having that title and relate and sort of references to the original in their attempt to uh, attach itself to the original film to make some extra money they also kind of i think scuttled it but i mean over time like i mean i guess that's the only reason i would have been watching this movie if it was just called like ghosts at christmas or something i might have never watched it so it goes both ways Actually, this time of year, like around Christmas and New Year's, is actually a perfect time to watch uh, Curse of the Cat People um, in isolation, like not even as a Cat People remake. Like it's a kind of gentle, what's the Frank Capra movie that plays on TV all the time? Uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life type, like, you know, version of the Bad Seed. (laughs) Even though the kid's not necessarily evil, uh, you know, she has like a worldview that's different from the rest of the universe, and it has like a kind of Frank Capra spin on it in that way. Yeah, it is, it is definitely uh, something that works better in isolation from the first film, and it is very good. It's very sweet uh, in terms of how it's treating this little girl's journey. It's very much about a little girl who's very lonely finding a friend, and then there being a catch to what that friend is. Well, okay, so the sequel, Curse of the Cat People, is not necessarily like a close direct lineage from the original Valutin picture, but 1982's Cat People, you know, produced by Jerry Brockheimer, directed by Paul Schrader, in Technicolor, uh, same way as The Thing, it's supposed to be like this rejuvenation of the original picture, like for an 80s audience. It's not necessarily as blasphemous and as deviant from the original script as you might expect, even for a film that is filled with incest and over-the-top sexuality and violence in a way that Val Luton's picture is a lot more delicate than. There are a lot of scenes in the 1982 Cat People remake that are direct retreads of what we've already seen before. Uh, they redo the bus take with like a streetcar take in this movie where someone's chased on foot and the jump scare is a streetcar passes by instead of the bus since it's set in New Orleans. The pool scene is pretty much strictly by the books a remake of that scene there's a scene in the original we didn't talk about where they go to the serbian bar and this woman like recognizes Irina as like one of her own and is like oh i see that you're from our village of cat people i'm gonna call you out in front of all these uh friends that you've made in america to sort of like bring you back to this cultural place you had wish you had left behind and that's done again in, in this americanized version except that in the 1982 version, it's a Hispanic woman comes up to her and says, Mi hermana, like I see you as a sister in this this cat person culture that we both come from. That's what I really attach to on this remake. I always appreciated this cat people movie more than I think it's ever been respected for. Like this is my favorite picture set in New Orleans. 
Uh, this is basically set around the corner from where my house is. <laughs> I always kind of like downgraded in my mind, like, oh, this is a trashy version of a much classier picture. But like watching the two back to back, it's kind of surprised me how closely this movie actually does remake the original, even though it adds in the incest element that wasn't there in the first place. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a movie that I do have a lot of respect for, particularly uh, I think so many years removed from even this one. Uh, not as many years as the first was removed from the remake, but we're so many years away from Cat People in 1982 that it uh, has a sort of uh, class to it because it has all these this sort of uh, traditional filmmaking presented in it. And all of the sort of uh, trashy elements of it are weirdly enough like cool things now to put in your movies. Like the sort of synth, the synth scoring is something that uh, in recent years has become a very cool thing to put in your art house horror movie or art house genre movie. The Drive movies and, you know, all sorts of movies have just like taken back, back synths and made them something that's like respectable and not just like, eh, it's a cheap way to fill your soundtrack. Uh, and all the sex and stuff is not as exploitative as I think, uh, you know, a lot of reviewers called it at the time. I think at the time people were just like, oh, this is big, brash, shocking movie that wants to shock you with sex and violence. Well, guess what? It got a lot of bad, bad notices from the big guys at the time, Ebert and Leonard Malton, for that reason. And I think nowadays it seems kind of quaint to call this movie out on its sex and violence stuff, because the most of what's transgressive about this movie is in that transgressive, except for the incest stuff. Uh, but yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a movie that I think uh, time has been very kind to. I think the synth score from Giorgio Moroder, who I'm pretty sure has scored every single movie since the dawn of time, uh, considering how many credits he has, like, as a composer. It's him and Ennio Morricone. They split it. It was a 50-50. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're right. That is, like, an even split. Um, it's it's very um, of the time in, like, that 80s way. I think this is very an MTV-type horror film. I just talked to Brittany in a recent episode about The Lost Boys, about how that feels like a music video version of like what a vampire film would look like and i feel like cat people has that same vibe especially in the dream sequence late in the film natasha kinski sort of accepts who she is as a cat person and like uh what she's been inducted into and that scene looks like an introduction to a hair metal video and to have that um theme from cat people from david bowie on the soundtrack where he's just like, putting out the fire with gasoline! Yeah. It is so coked out, Bowie. It's Bowie without anybody telling him no, but um, it does feel very 1980s in a very, like, genuine way. Like, MTV was a big deal as far as, like, artistic aesthetic goes, and this movie is right at the cusp of when that became a big deal. So, like, for it to participate in that aesthetic, I feel like it's natural, and I identify with it, because obviously I already grew up with, like, music videos as an art form and as like a version of cinema which actually makes it easier for me to clue into this movie as like an artistic height as opposed to like the noir aspects of the Valutin Cat people which is a little more of like a cultural barrier for me it's like a little too classy for the things I was raised on you know like I have to like try a little harder to tap into that it is something that is definitely subjective in terms of like whether or not you find that sort of 80s charm uh, charming. Whether or not that's 80s charm or <laughs> if that's just gloop was probably uh, everybody was on team gloop uh, in 1992. But uh, 
during our look back, I think that this this movie has has come together very nicely. I do think it's over long. I really like how the dad from Home Alone, John Hurd, is in it because he like didn't act enough that like I think about him as anything but the dad from Home Alone. So whenever he's in this or Chud, I'm just like, oh, the dad from Home Alone is trying to fix figure out the Chud problem. I have that problem with the villain from Chud. Uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but whenever I see him in Chud, I'm like, that's the Home Alone guy. <laughs> yeah, D- Daniel Stern is... Uh, Chud, for some reason, has two, has like three plus people from Home Alone. I'm trying to remember the third guy. But yeah, this movie has a similar thing where I'm like, what's the what's the dad from Home Alone doing, uh, doing down here in New Orleans? Go home. Catherine O'Hara is uh, waiting for you to come home. <laughs> Do you find him believable at all as this sort of... Because uh, I think the, the first movie and this movie, what they have in common is that the, the men are, are weirdly sort of ineffectual, te- almost temptresses to the women. Like, they're they're not really, like, that important to the plot. They're just sort of um, there as the women try and figure out what the hell is going on with their, their cat people uh, anxiety, their cat people curse. Like, both movies, I think, ultimately, the women are the are the people that matter, and the men are just kind of like, well, you know, uh, you don't have to be a cat person. Yeah, I feel like in this one, especially, there's, like, an irony. Actually, maybe even in the original as well, where, like, the guy's like, oh, I'm actually more of a animal person than a cat person. Like, I don't know how to relate to people. And it's like, duh, that's why you are attracted to this woman who's a literal cat. Uh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) like the movie's kind of having fun at his expense a little bit there but i think there's more of a mystery to the way this movie's set up than the original natasha kinski comes to america not sure what her past is she's been passed around from like orphanage to foster home to adoptive parents her whole life so she comes to new orleans as like discovering her roots and as soon as she's at the airport and michael mcdowell who's playing her brother uh, accepts her back into the fold he's already smelling her and like uh leering over her and laying it on very thickly for someone who has to convince her of pretty major things that she has to get over both that she is a cat person and that they are destined to be together as an incestuous duo so the cat people 82 version of me is more about natasha kinski discovering herself and deciding what she wants to do now that she knows what her plot in life is, that she can only be intimate with other cat people, or she has to kill human people that she is intimate with. That's her only two options. Whereas uh, in the 1942 version, uh, the original Irina already knows what the situation is from the get-out, and she has to explain that to someone else. Like, I already know who I am as a person. You have to meet me halfway here. I can't fuck you because if I do, bad things will happen. It, uh, it de- Definitely in the original, you feel that sort of tragedy right from the beginning. Irina already feels like somebody who can identify with a cat in a cage more than she can identify with, you know, the handsome man trying to charm her. Like, it's a very literal thing that they begin the movie with her sketching a, man, a cat in a cage. Um, and that also in the remake, that's a, sort of a, a thing is that like she sees herself as that she's like a cat in a cage and like what happens if she opens the door and that uh, that sort of tragedy is played out right from the beginning in the original. And then, yeah, because the, the remake is two hours long and they play up the tragedy a little bit more. She gets to find out, though, it does make a little bit less sense. Then the original the original reason she doesn't fuck him is because she knows exactly what's going to happen. In the remake, she just is a virgin be- just because? I think she knows more than she's willing to admit to herself. Like, she knows that whenever she gets horny, 
or scared that she might get angry or like emotionally involved in something that she knows that there's some sort of like beast emerging from within her. It reminds me a lot of the movie Raw from this year as well. That is very where like yeah. there's sort of this sort of awakening coming from within her that she can't control once it's out in the open. Uh, and it's like an unspoken thing. Like when you're a teenager, there's things that feel more important to you than they feel to other people, and you're like afraid to express them out loud and I don't know, I guess in fear of being embarrassed. And here I feel like she is trying to relate to like, say, the other love interest who's like the sort of knockoff Julianne Moore character who's also in love with the same zookeeper as she is. And she can't exactly say out loud why she hasn't lost her virginity, but she's like, oh, I did get into heavy petting a couple times, but it went too far, and I was afraid of what might happen next. And Malcolm McDowell actually says to her directly, like, you know that there's something wrong here. You know that when you get excited, it's dangerous. You can only be with me, and it's just something you're not willing to admit. Uh, yeah, and the Malcolm McDowell thing, um, I'm curious, uh, I, for me, I, I, he came off as kind of a creep um, immediately. I'm curious if they had cast someone other than Malcolm McDowell, or maybe, you know, it's just not, I'm, I'm not a woman or gay man, like maybe, uh, there, he does have a more appeal. For me, I just see Malcolm McDowell as one of the droogs, Alex, uh, you know, smashing up faces and stuff. Like, I don't see any sort of, like, appeal to his sexuality. I just see it as a sort of, like, poison id. But maybe if, if they cast someone else different in the role, I think it might have even more of a transgressive quality that, like, uh, women would be like, well, if that's the only person you can have sex with without murdering somebody... But yeah, that, that's the only aspect that didn't work. I think Malcolm McDowell is actually really terrific in the role, and he's doing his best to make himself both appealing uh, sexually, but also appealing as a villain. But like, I just don't think that he doesn't have that sort of like raw appeal. Yeah, it's not like John Hamm is in the I role. I was thinking John like, Hamm too. Undeniably, like <laughs> handsome. <laughs> uh, it's weird because like, okay, it makes sense because he is kind of feline. Like when he does those like perching or jumping. In like a cat-like position, it's like, oh, I can kind of see the feline aspects of him as an actor. But he, like you said, is drawn to these roles where he has to be like over-the-top sexual. Um, not only in A Clockwork Orange, but also in Caligula. It's interesting that he's sort of drawn to these like overly sensual roles where he's not necessarily the most handsome man in the room, but he's supposed to exude this like sexual confidence and like sexual allure that is not always easy to tap into as an outsider. Like, I don't necessarily see why he would be irresistible. But I do think Natasha Kinski um, sells the allure and the fear of being attracted to him. And it's kind of fucked up. Like, she does come from a background where her father, Klaus Kinski, um, is known as an abuser and, like, an incestuous abuser, uh, where he was, like, a difficult person to be related to and maybe even a fucking rapist. Yeah, it's it's hard to tell. It's- I, I don't know the exact family history there, but I know that he has been accused of, like, imposing his own, like, sexuality on his own family members. And I'm sure she wasn't entirely guarded from that. Yeah, I've heard mixed stories about him, and it's one of those things that we've just kind of buried in the past because he's, like dead and like people have sort of accepted that he's this weird monster but like that is definitely part of the deal is there's this there's a bit of sadness there where you're like uh natasha kensky never really got her own uh, you know normal home life and in this sense like this movie is sort of like she seems to be almost too well cast and i i, I hope that she was it, i hope she was stable when she made this 
Yeah, it's not it's not only the incestuous aspect, but it's also like the camera is like drooling over her body at every opportunity it's given. Like whether or not she's like naked and combing through City Park in New Orleans, or if she's like just catching fish in like shrimp boots and like very short, short shorts. Like the camera is always drooling over her, no matter what she's doing. I, I it's it's interesting because like, do they need to make her that sexy to the audience? The the point is that like her and Malcolm McDowell are supposed to have some sort of unspoken attraction, or they're supposed to have some sort of un some sort of attraction to one another. But like, does she have to be so like? Does she have to be so exploited by the camera? Do we have to have these shots of her standing in the rain and like looking like how she does? Like, do we have to have that in the movie? I don't know. Would anybody have been interested in this movie if it didn't have those sexually exploitive elements? Probably not. It's a tough question to answer because, like, she's supposed to be sexy, I guess, but, like, does the movie call for that? Like, isn't the point that she's just attracted to other people that also want to have sex with her, but she can't? Like, maybe the movie should have exploited the men. Maybe the movie should have had the men be the ones that are being exploited and being, like, so appealing because, like, and because she is our character. Um, it's not necessary for us to want to have sex with her. It should be necessary that we're, like, we can get it when she's, like, attracted to the other men in her life. Yeah, and, like, when Malcolm McDowell transforms into a werecat, he, like, does grotesque things. Like, you do see him naked, but he'll, like, you know, there's, like, these Rick Baker-type transformation where, like, the cat emerges from within the human flesh and takes over, and vice versa, the human will emerge from within the cat body, and he'll have these, like, sort of, like, fleshy, um, Screaming Mad George-type leftovers, like, this, like, goo hanging off his body, and he'll eat it the way, like, a disgusting cat would. And those moments aren't played for, like, sensualizing his body the way they are with her. Like, he is sort of this, like, grotesque animal, even though he's just as naked as she is. But I think, like, Raw, even though it just sort of came out organically earlier, I think that is a good comparison point, um, just because the same story of, like, a sexual awakening is being told now, but less uh, leering. Like, in Raw, you can get the same vibe from, like, what it means for a woman to become herself, like, in college or out on her own, outside of, like, parental oversight out in the world. And in this movie, you get the same vibe, except you see her, like, ogled in a way that, that doesn't happen with the main character in Raw. Yeah, she's, uh, Raw would be a good companion piece to that, because, yeah, you get that she's, like, attractive, and some people might find her attractive, but she is definitely sexually alienated in that, so then when she does get chances to, like, sexually connect with people, it is seen as this sort of, like, risky proposition. And I think this movie could have done better the original, uh, the, the remake of Cat People could have done better by adding some more of that in there as opposed to just like a lot of like surface level sexiness to the whole thing where it's like, we get it. Natasha Kinski is super hot. Like, we get it. But like John Hurd, we just see it and he's just like, he just looks like a dad. Like the, the appeal is not equilateral, I don't think, at least speaking from my perspective. But I, I really like the movie still, obviously, but... Maybe it's a personal bias, but, like, whenever people try to set movies in New Orleans, they try to do this, like, um, transgressive sexual aspect as well. In Pretty Baby, which is, like, Louis, Louis Miles, like... Louis Maye, I don't really know Louis Mal? his name, but... Okay, sure. Um, that's also okay. set in New Orleans. Um, and that's, like, a underage Brooke Shields working in a brothel here in, like, the jazz age, you know? Um, and this feels like the horror version of that. Like, they're trying to set this, like, sexually transgressive story in New Orleans and sort of justifying it with the culture of the area. 
I'm always like uh, on the hook when that like artsy fartsy like production values are like married to like a schlocky sexually trans- transgressive premise. Like I'm always on the hook for that. But uh, when it's in New Orleans, it's always like an extra step for me where I'm like, oh yeah, it's really funny to use like the excess and the um, decadence of the city to justify going there in a movie. It would feel weird if this movie weren't set locally in a way, like it feels like married to the subject, the setting. Yeah, there is a sort of like weird exoticism to, maybe it's like the French influence, but there's like a weird exoticism to New Orleans that uh, you see as a as an outsider that where you see it as like the city of like putting your sexual mores aside and like yeah that's that's something that as an outsider and somebody who's never been that's like a part of the image that i get so that uh totally makes sense yeah and the, the funny thing is like the city is very catholic and is super uptight in some ways and you know mardi gras are like big release every year where everyone becomes decadent in a very like public open way and there's been a culture built around that where like that release has been sort of like an annual tradition and has been you know commercialized on bourbon street where like anybody from iowa can come in and have their mardi gras on like any given day of the year it's funny to me the way the movie is represent the the, the way the city is represented in movies as sort of a free-for-all playground of like moral ambiguity and it's also good in this particular instance because the geography of the city is, like, eerily accurate. Like, whenever they say they're uptown or on Annunciation Street or in the quarter or something, like, highly specific, it actually checks out. The only time it's very strange is when they go to the bayou to go to um, the main love interest, like, fishing shack in the middle of the wetlands. That's actually from the area I'm from, like, just east of the city in St. Bernard Parish. And that looks right, except for when Natasha Kinski goes into her nighttime dream sequence, whenever she gets horny in the middle of the night and, like, sort of ventures out into nature naked, all of a sudden she's in City Park, which is, like, miles and miles and miles away. And that's where you see, like, owls and other wildlife just sort of, like, converging with her. But otherwise, the movie is, like, super accurate, And I know you are from, or at least lived in Chicago for a long while, so you're used to seeing Chicago represented on screen. And I'm sure in Chicago you see, like, geography really jumbled uh, in all these different movies in a way that doesn't make any geographical sense. And I feel like New Orleans always is that way as well, except in this one instance I feel like this movie actually, like, pays attention to the layout of the city in a way I'm not used to. And that always strikes me and feels like eerily accurate to how i actually live my life here that's uh really terrific to hear because uh so many movies by uh location supervisors and such location directors are essentially just chopped up and smashed back together because they're like well the car crash would look better on this corner seven miles away and you're like but the this whole thing is supposed to happen in 15 minutes how would they get there So the uh, that sort of um, accuracy, or at least the feeling that he wanted to like capture the city in both its essence and in a sort of literal way, is uh, quite wonderful. I always love to hear that. Most Chicago movies are just like LA movies; they just shoot wherever the fuck they want, and then they smash it all together. And you're like, "How the fuck did she get all the way up to Evanston in five minutes?" Yeah, that's how I'm used to seeing New Orleans too. Like, I'll see John Cena. Um, race across the river on the bridge and beat a ferry over or I'll see like Clint Eastwood in an 80s movie running through the quarter and all of a sudden he's on foot at the graveyards like 20 miles away and it doesn't necessarily make any sense 
But actually, one of the details that stands out to me is the New Orleans Zoo, which all the times I've watched this in my life, I always thought like, oh, in the zoo in the 80s in Audubon Zoo, we used to be really fucked up to animals. Like, we were way behind the times. You're not supposed to just put animals in these like little concrete cages. They're supposed to have these like giant, expansive habitats. But what I actually discovered on this most recent rewatch was that the habitats where she goes to the zoo and sketches the leopard the same way Irina does in the original is actually a studio lot in California. Um, You see a lot of the Audubon Zoo here. It's redesigned to be supposedly the New Orleans City Zoo, but the scenes where she's actually visiting the individual exhibits where she like sees the panther by itself and there's like monkeys in the cage by itself that's actually on a studio lot in california and it's because they were trying to be more faithful to the look of the original where arena's like sketching the panther in the zoo so new orleans uh, actually gets like the shit end of the stick only in that one aspect like audubon zoo looks like it's 40 50 years behind the times in the zoo scenes in a way that i actually bought into and did this most recent reach watch <laughs> in the 80s like our zoo was like totally fucked in that way um, that makes sense, especially because, like, Paul Schrader's like, I just need something, These scene- we're gonna be shooting a lot of shit in the zoo, I just need something that looks good and matches what I want to say about how we're treating the animals, which is not necessarily, he wants to- the zookeepers to look good in this movie, he doesn't want them to look like assholes. Yeah, I mean, everybody cares about their job, they care about the animals. Yeah, they, they all want to, they all want to save the animals, and, like, the only time they see putting down the leopard as a, as an option is, like, as a last means, because, uh, they kill, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ed Ed Bagley Jr. Jr. They kill Ed Bagley Jr. in that, in that really great horror scene early on where they're, where you're like, okay, so this movie's gonna have some bloodletting in it. Got it. That actually probably is the biggest gore moment, besides, like, the Rick Baker-style transformations, is Ed Begley Jr. having his arm ripped out of his socket and then bleeding to death? That's probably the most gore you get in the film. You mostly get an aftermath. Uh, you mostly get after the fact, like Malcolm McDowell standing in front of a mirror in his hotel room, like covered in viscera and, and all the goo and grossness. Which it's funny to me, like, I know that you love The Thing, um, the RKO remake and The Thing, and this is an R- another, like, 80s perversion of an RKO classic. Uh, and I gravitate more towards this one, but it's only because I grew up with it, I guess. Like, the thing has more of those, like, grotesque freakouts of, like, over-the-top practical effects transformations, like, creature features style, like, craft and, like, visual filmmaking. And this one, it's more thematic. It does have those, like, 1980s, like, MTV-style indulgences in setting especially in like the dream sequences but it doesn't have that much like horror film gore and horror film like gross out transformation moments yeah it's more about uh sort of the emotional uh transition and like the if there's horror there it's more about the horror of you becoming something that you're destined to be but you definitely do not want to be it's more there than it's about uh, you know blood and slashing and shit but they do they do have a few great scenes that are really scary and even if it's not gory just like the scene of the leopard rampaging in the hotel room is really scary because it gets you lets you kind of see that like holy shit like that (laughs) that would be really terrifying to be stuck in a box with one of these things 
And I do like that, even though the movie doesn't lean into the horror, it leads into this uh, sexuality. Malcolm McDowell, as a panther, chases the sex worker out of the room. She falls down the stairs, and after she's already done falling and like doing her whole death scene, then her bra pops open. Like the movie yeah. is like very over to- over the top in its salaciousness, even when it's not over the top in its violence. I think you like this because it marries like a traditional sense of technical brilliance that Paul Schrader has and and also uh, Rick Baker and such with just like a really trashy approach to certain material but still thoughtful that is my aesthetic yeah (laughs) like like having the having the the brains to know what you should be doing but also being like eh, but this needs to be sexy right we should sex this up right yeah i really like when people go over out of their way to justify their own like stupid horny teenager impulses like that's really my vibe in general uh, it is really fascinating because, like, sometimes bothers me about a lot of people that, like, shit on B-cinema, genre cinema, cult cinema. They're like, yeah, it's just like a blood and gore movie or whatever. And, like, there is an actual value to having these movies. Like, what that value is changes on movie to movie. Just like, you know, highfalutin cinema, the value in each one of those films changes movie to movie. The ask of what the movie is asking of you and what it's going to tell you, the promise of what it's going to promise to, to do to you uh is uh different in every one of these weird genre movies and in this way this movie doesn't really feel like any other because it is like i said technical brilliance married to trash raw is a very french film with a very french perspective uh it does have a lot of technical brilliance but it's not really doesn't feel trashy cat people is a, a perfect 1982 little time capsule of a movie yeah and i think that exact balance is like why i personally gravitate towards it i definitely see why the um even classier like noir bent of the val luton 1942 picture is attractive to a lot of people as well like it is a respectable film the way a lot of horror movies aren't yeah it's not exploitative or over the top in a way that most horror films are yeah for sure so one thing that really stood out to me in the 80s cat people was like Seeing it instead of on the VHS quality, I'm used to have seeing it like all the times I've watched it since high school, is like how well it plays into the Roger Deakins version of uh, Blade Runner 2049, especially in the throwback scenes to the original Serbian village where the cat people come from. It has that same very orange, like desert scape surrealism to it. Uh, that I think looks even better on Blu-ray than it ever has looked before. And you probably could say the same of the uh, 40s Val Luton picture. The more times it gets like digitally restored and like updated to new formats, probably even the closer it's ever looked to its original version when it first played like super clear on the screen in the 40s. Both of these movies, even if you may be drawn to one or the other on like a thematic level, I think they're both very fascinating visual pieces that are worth seeing on their most updated cleaned up digital format especially if you ever get a chance to see either one on the big screen oh my god yeah highly recommend going to see them as big and loud as possible in their like most cleaned up format because they are uh, very traditional successes these are not experimental films um and therefore a lot of what they're their photography aims to capture is a very traditional sort of filmmaking and in that way like the crisper the picture the better yeah and if i had to recommend anything else like after all this talking i would recommend listening to peter's 
podcast we love to watch uh, that he co-hosts with Aaron Armstrong. I love listening to that show every week. Uh, Peter, do you have anything specifically you want to plug that y'all are working on soon? No, uh, that's very sweet of you to say. No, we love to watch is where I'm putting all my uh, all my promo points into because uh, we're expanding to a network. We have the Haven. It's a podcast uh, show with Marcus Jones, Crush Celluloid, and then we also have. Um, uh, Pod's Not Dead, which is going to be a sort of uh, occasional podcast between Aaron, me, uh, Rick Kelly of Luddite Robot, and then um, Liz Lerner, also of uh, Luddite Robot now. She's now writing for the site as well. Uh, and she's uh, she's wonderful. Rick's wonderful. Aaron's wonderful. Um, we're doing a sort of occasional podcast on religious movies. We're recording one for Christmas, uh, I have to say. And uh, yeah, that's, that's everything that I want you guys to look at is uh, right there. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, and I really do love like the things that Rick and um, Liz are doing, like as a collaborative effort on Let It Robot. It feels like that site is like rejuvenated in a very uh, exciting way in the recent months. Um, Rick likes having someone else to bounce off of. I love Rick's writing. I've been I've been reading it for years, but Rick likes having someone else to bounce off of. I think as do we all. I like I could do Swamp Flicks as a solo effort, but it wouldn't be nearly as interesting is like having someone like making me watch something for the first time every month or every week as well <laughs> well i am glad to be on oh thank you so much i honestly this has been like a marathon recording so i can't <laughs> thank you enough for your patience um and i do look forward to your seeing your uh, recap of your favorite movies of a year ago uh which i'm sure will be coming in january as well <laughs> yep <laughs> best of 2016 coming in 2018 <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> There's a value in like patience in that uh, regard, for sure. It's almost like a dad version of the list. Like, you didn't get to watch any of these movies in theaters, so now you're catching them on Netflix. <laughs> uh, and we will be coming up with our own less patient version of our favorite movies of 2017 on the next episode. Uh, and it will be another extra long uh, dive into the things we love so much about this year. And I'm sure in six months' time, we'll be like, I can't believe I left this movie off the list. I didn't see it when I should have. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited to hear that. That's going to be a lot of fun. And it'll let me know what to watch for the year from now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that's a wrap on the year. And uh, y'all have a great couple weeks. And I hope you enjoy your holiday. And I hope you uh, see some good movies and catch up on some great stuff you might have missed uh, as they came out in the theaters. Happy New Year, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.